0: You know, we're trialling a number of things now that that hopefully address safety issues and make the game more entertaining. And that's the goal here: is can we make the sport safer and at the same time make it more entertaining so that we can attract, you know, more uh, more people watching more rugby in more places and growing audiences. <laughs>
1: Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I am your host Owen Connolly, hope you're well. We're going to be talking this time to Alan Gilpin, the Chief Executive of World Rugby. Alan stepped up to that role early in 2021 after a successful spell as COO and as Managing Director of Rugby World Cup and it's a pretty fascinating time to have done so. Between the challenges of the pandemic financially and logistically, and the attentions of venture capital firms and private investors, there have been plenty of decisions to make for the short, medium, and long term. These are times of real opportunity for union and sevens in everything from the growth of the women's game, which has its COVID-delayed World Cup coming in October, to geographical expansion. But this is really a conversation about responsibility, the part World Rugby has to play in managing the commercial development of the sport, coordinating an ever wider range of stakeholder interests, and taking critical measures to improve player safety and welfare. We also talk about World Rugby's new Environmental Sustainability Plan 2030, launched in January as a roadmap to dramatically cutting carbon emissions through a focus on climate action, the circular economy and protection for the natural environment. Alan gives his thoughts on building sustainable choices into every process at a time of accelerated change. And incidentally, SportsPro will be exploring that topic in depth right across its digital channels, including here on the podcast, for Sustainability Week, running from the 21st to the 25th of February. So do look out for that. All right, then, let's hear from Alan Gilpin. Alan Gilpin, Chief Executive of World Rugby. Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast.
0: Thanks, Owen. Good to see you. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to have you on. Um, I mean, we're, we're going to be covering off a few things in the next kind of 40 minutes or so. And, um, you know, I know you've got some sustainability plans to talk about and, and rethinking the kind of direction and responsibilities of World Rugby. but you know you've taken over in some pretty interesting times you've obviously been with world rugby for a while but um 2021 uh quite the year to to step into the hot seat um you know what what kind of shape basically we're coming out of the pandemic now you've got a major event this year uh what kind of shape is world rugby in as an organization and world rugby as the sport um heading into 2022 look i think i think we're in good shape
0: um You know, and and, and much of that goes back to the fact that we, you know, we were fortunate. Um, we might say well timed, but I think people would say fortunate to have had obviously Rugby World Cup two thousand nineteen in Japan, just before you know the world really changed in obviously March twenty twenty. So you know, whether you look at that financially from the perspective of, you know, that's our major revenue generator, that's put us in a strong position, that's actually enabled us to be very supportive financially and more broadly of, of our kind of world rugby uh, membership and ecosystem uh, in, in this difficult last couple of years. So, so in that sense, we're in good shape. I think the other reason we feel we're in really good shape as we as we sort of hit the uh, the point we're at now is that during that first part of the pandemic and actually in, in in 2019, just before we were working on a new strategic plan for world rugby, you know, that's, that's an evolution, not a revolution, but it's a more focused, strategic plan that's really allowed us to be uh, a little bit more sort of uh, laser focused in our intentions around growing the game around the world. And therefore, we've spent, I think, hopefully we'll look back and say we have spent wisely the time where maybe there's been less activity on the field in being very active off the field and really engaging with our own stakeholders, you know, which is 128 national uh, rugby federations, six regional associations and, and a wider group of stakeholders you know, through all of that and, and again that strategic plan has allowed us to re-anchor those conversations and you know we'll talk about it i'm sure in a number of contexts but we come out of the pandemic in a position where certainly at the elite international level of the game the players have a greater voice than they've ever had you know as, as one example of what that kind of engagement in the last couple of years has allowed us to do so now i think i think we feel um we're in good shape and the sports in good shape but you know again we're very realistic that um, we've got a lot of boys and girls and men and women to get back on the field, and, and many have done that. We've got great numbers coming back into the sport, particularly in established rugby markets. But we have to
1: sort of go again now with a growth plan. Yeah, I mean, that interruption, particularly financially, and we'll spend a bit of time, I'm sure, talking about the conversations. It's, it's accelerated at various levels of rugby when it comes to, to financing. But you know, But how did it change the way that you think about your role at World Rugby, coordinating the rest of the game as a kind of a as a kind of a backstop for the rest of the game, all of those type of things. What did it crystallise? Anything? Did it? What? How do you come out of that period now? Um, think about what your position is.
0: Yeah. And again, look, I
1: think it's been again an evolution through that that last couple of
0: year years of of time, and I think in a number of ways, and there are, there are lots of examples of this. What it's shown us is. Yes, we've got a role to play as the international federation, the governing body, uh, in supporting our membership and hopefully servicing and supporting our, our members uh, ever better. And they all, you know, they're not a one-size-fits-all group of members. You know, we, it, it, as you know in rugby, we've got of those 128 nations playing the game. We've got maybe, you know, 15 to 20 who are mature. Well established, and in some cases, you know, in themselves, well funded national governing bodies, and then we've got a uh, next maybe twenty who are trying to get to that point, and then a long tail that are much more, um, you know, volunteer run national governing bodies that need a different type of support from us. So, so what that's meant in the last two years, and who needs what type of financial support, who needs what type of broader support, has been very different. And again, that's probably allowed us to get to know them a bit better, which is which is helpful. Um, and I think, you know, there are also a number of examples in the environmental sustainability plan is one of them, um, what we're now doing in the global calendar space in, in men's 15s and, and the positive momentum to, to move that discussion forward that's been part of, of World Rugby for so long. I think we're seeing ourselves as a leader and a facilitator of that progress much more than maybe in the past. So we, our role has been clarified in that in a way that maybe it wasn't in years gone by
1: what are some of the priorities for 2022 we're sitting here what middle of february um what what does the year look like for world rugby what's at the top of the agenda
0: the year looks massive and it feels like every year does which which actually in itself is probably a a great kind of window and and tribute to the opportunity that i think we feel we have as a sport and therefore again we have as as world rugby in in, a sort of leadership role um you, you know Priorities, you know, as always, include advancing and progressing the player safety and the player welfare agenda. We know if the sport is going to grow around the world, and that's obviously ultimately our purpose as an organisation, that we need to make sure we earn the permission to grow the sport by making sure people understand uh, the sport is, is a safe sport to play. So that, that's a huge part of our agenda and a huge part of our priorities as it was in 2021. And I think we made really big steps in 2021 in that area. You know, other priorities include we've got a big year coming back onto the field of play. You know, we're just at the start, obviously, of, a, of a, what looks like a really uh, exciting Six Nations. there will be a really, you know, really exciting Women's Six Nations. All of that looks forward to, in the women's games certainly a massive year with Rugby World Cup 7s in Cape Town, Commonwealth Game 7s actually just before that, to Women's World Cup that obviously was delayed from last year, which whilst a tough decision last year... We know was the right decision for the players for fans etc and now now we have uh, in the women's game this amazing opportunity to showcase the best of women's rugby uh, later in the year in new zealand so it's a really big year in that sense but there are lots of things going on if you like off the field and behind the scenes um and you know one example of that again is is the work that we're doing very closely with the six nations unions with the SANZAR unions with the wider group of emerging nations around the men's calendar how do we finally get to a better position in terms of what does July and November look like? How can we put a competition model around that and make it really exciting for fans and use, again, those competitions to grow, you know, grow our collective audiences around the world. And I think we're in a better place in those conversations than we have been for,
1: for a long time. There's a few things that we'll we'll kind of unpack a bit later, but I did just want to pick up on, on the player safety question because, you know, that's something that it's, easily lost amid all the other big conversations that, that are happening, particularly at the kind of macro uh, commercial level and everything. Um, you know, rugby is a growing sport um, and obviously there are steps being taken to make it a, safe, a safer sport. Particularly with some of the injuries that players have picked up in the past, you're going to have difficult news come out um, about things that you unfortunately no longer are able to do much about other than offer them the support and um and 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 care in the longer term. You know, I suppose how do you manage this process of, of convincing people that the game is safe while also being aware that there's gonna be some very, very challenging conversations to be had um in the years to come? Yeah, look, it's 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 uh, you no know, not only a really good question, it's right at the heart
0: obviously of, of everything that we're that we're thinking about and doing. And you know, you mentioned quite a few Really important aspects of the whole debate around player safety, and even just in that in that question, you know. So we want to listen to those difficult testimonies, if you like, of former players. Um, they've been very brave in the way that they've been very open about that. It has to inform not just the debate about how we do a better job as a sport as a whole in caring for players who played the game in the past. And I think that's a big responsibility that we're trying to, you know, really work through how we take on and that involves our work with international rugby players as, a, as an international players association and their work through their national players associations with players, you know, in all of the kind of established rugby playing nations. So that's, that's a big part of, of, of the work we're doing. You know, how do we care more uh, better in the future for former players and provide better support for them? And there's a, there's a huge amount of work going on in the kind of brain health space, uh, in that regard. And then at the other end of the spectrum, if you like, how do we make sure that we are being uh, clear with the players of the future, the boys and girls and their parents, that we want to to, to come into rugby about what the risks of playing rugby are? And, and, and the interesting thing when you sort of juxtapose those, those two ends of the spectrum is that, and, and this is where we have to move really with the science and, and the kind of medical research, and, and we really are led by that, is that, we need to know more about what those risks look like. You know, for example, you know, over the course of the last 12 months, we've been doing a huge study in, in New Zealand with Otago University and New Zealand rugby using instrumented mouthguards, you know, technology that wasn't available a couple of years ago, but using this kind of nascent technology to really understand in the community game, so not at the elite level, what does head impact look like? What what sort of head impacts are players, um, are players uh, being subjected to? So there's, a, there's an enormous amount of age grade all the way through to senior community rugby, men's and women's, uh, been analysed with you know with uh, with that study, the, the findings of which we'll have uh, in a few months' time. And what that will allow us to do for the first time really is say actually, the risks at community rugby level aren't the same. Of course they're not as as the risks or the or the gain that people are saying seeing on a... You know, a Saturday afternoon in the Six Nations, for example, the types of impacts and the way those impacts are being uh, being uh, suffered, if you like, by the players is very different. And that's really important because we've got to be honest about people owning those risks if they're going to play rugby. And you know, as we all know, it's an inherently physical sport and that's what attracts people to it. And that's what gives it the incredible values and the physical and mental wellbeing uh, benefits that the sport has. So. You know, that's just an example of the different parts of the spectrum. You know, there's a there's an and there's everything in between from working from players of the future, making sure the game is safe for current players, and a lot of that is around some of the law trials and, and changes we're making to the laws of the game through to care for the players that play the game in the past. And and you know, we launched a six-point action plan last year to try and, you know, position and cement rugby's position as most progressive sport in relation to the care of our players and we're incredibly serious about that you know our executive board have doubled our investment in in player safety and player welfare uh, research and activities and initiatives we've understood that the women's game which is a young professional sport uh, in rugby terms is different to the men's game again you can't make assumptions about what you know from the data in the men's game and, and what that means in terms of safety for the women's game so there's a massive push to make uh to, to really invest in research that is specific to the women's game we've just set up a women's player welfare advisory committee to really dive into that so yeah it's we're doing a lot and you can never do enough and you can certainly never do too much in that space and it, it will become you know a, a much much bigger uh area of investment for us all the time
1: yeah and i think obviously you know i spoke to uh brett gosper who who used to sit in your chair about this and his role at NFL Europe, and obviously it's a huge issue for for the NFL. It's a huge issue in uh, in, in football as well. Um, so I'm sure there will be more research and more kind of pooled knowledge when it comes to all of this. But from your perspective, where does the where is the accountability going to lie, and how are you going to guarantee that accountability?
0: Yeah, look, I think accountability lies in lots of different places, doesn't it? And again, you know, there's part of this debate that's looking back at at players who've played the game in the past, and you know, and, and again, we are very Uh, led and we have to be by the evolving science in this space so you know what's known about some of these issues now wasn't known 10 15 20 years ago and that i think that's important to recognize and that and that doesn't mean we care for those players any less but but that's the reality of moving forward the science we want to make sure as a sport and therefore as an organization leading the sport that we're doing everything we can to address safety issues with the with the science we've got now and make sure we are an investor in that science and that we're putting the right resources and the right expertise behind that and and engaging in the right way because you know there are huge you know again you mentioned NFL and other sports there there are a huge number of diverse opinions across different sports and across our sport on what some of these risks are and we need to listen to all of those views and then come out with a balanced approach that then informs Again, law—for example, the way that the laws of the game or rules, as other sports would call them, laws in rugby—work. And you know, we're trying a number of things now that that hopefully address safety issues and make the game more entertaining. And that's the goal here: is can we make the sport safer and at the same time make it more entertaining so that we can attract you know more uh, more people watching
1: more rugby in more places and growing audiences. Just taking a break from our chat with Alan Gilpin for a message from the team here. We hope you're enjoying this SportsPro podcast. If you are, then we'd love it if you could subscribe on your preferred podcast platform and leave us a rating and a nice review to help get the word out there. You can also like and share our content on social media or join in the conversation yourself using the hashtag SportsProPod. Quick reminder as well that there's still time to vote for SportsPro in the best sports business category at the inaugural sports podcast awards we're up against some very fine nominees but would really appreciate your support you can register at sportspodcastawards.com and take it from there okay let's get back to alan gilpin there's definitely a lot of confidence in in the potential of rugby and the potential growth of rugby and you know that leads us onto a very different topic which is the investment financially in the sport that has been accelerated by uh the stoppages of of the covid-19 pandemic i think but it was you know it's a it's a conversation that's been around rugby for three or four years um in terms of you know venture capital funds and private equity investment um where is uh, you know you you mentioned to the ft last summer that that you were in talks with various parties what's the latest on that um, when it comes to third-party investment in, in World Rugby's commercial projects? Yeah, look, I think we still, we're still working through what that what that looks like for us. And the, and the
0: reason I say that is, again, with the new strategic plan launched last year, what we've really done in the last 12 months with some great uh, conversations with with different interested parties as well, really contributing to that, is try to understand what are the drivers of growth for the sport over the next 10, 15, 20 years? And... When we have those conversations, of course, what you see when a number of different types of investors and private equity in particular come into an area of sports and entertainment like rugby is they see opportunity and they see unexploited, particularly commercial value. And that's great in the sense that we can see that too. Rugby traditionally, particularly from a media rights perspective, is a very fragmented sport. You know, many sports are fragmented, but I think we're a particularly fragmented sport, different competition owners you know, fragmented and and, uh, and challenging calendar and scheduling, you know, if if as a sport, you know, and, and with as investors' assistance, you can get your arms around that more, you know, collaborate and aggregate, you know, not just content, but the approach to fan data, the relationship, the shifting consumer habits to so obviously uh, a more direct to consumer relationship for, for rights holders, then that value can be unlocked. And that's certainly, you know, the conversations that we know those investors are having with the properties they've invested in, whether that's Six Nations, some of the professional leagues and so on, and the conversations they've had with us. And obviously we're at a point in the global part of the sport where we can unlock some of that value. I think what we're being very deliberate about as we work through that at the moment, whilst those conversations are very positive and we're very open-minded is, you know, how much of that can World Rugby do either with existing resources, from financing that in different ways, and how, you know, how much do we need to work with third parties that that we need to, and I, and, I, and I hate this expression, but you know, mortgage the crown jewels on um, to do that. And 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 actually, when we work through those conversations, lots of investors can bring a lot more than that. As we all know, they can bring a huge amount of expertise and, and maybe pace that you don't have inherently anyway. So there are different reasons for wanting to work with third parties. So those conversations are still very much ongoing. Um, we've had some great debates, sort of internally with our executive board over the last uh, three or four months about what the shape of that might look like. It feeds, for example, into our view of a long-term Rugby World Cup hosting model. You know, We're in the midst of a, of a host selection process that will see us probably award hosting rights for the next 10 to 12 years. And that's very deliberate because that type of certainty of hosting will allow us to generate revenues more quickly and invest more and more quickly. And that might involve some investment partners doing that with us. If we can unlock more revenue more quickly, we can invest more aggressively in the women's game, which we know is an enormous growth opportunity. So there are so many moving parts to it. I think we're we're really
1: you know working through that uh, as we speak. I mean, what's the timeline for that kind of investment? You've got a cycle that's built around the World Cups. So there's one next year. Are we likely to have an announcement on a potential partner before then? are we likely to have something this year? Have you identified... you know? Is it a horse race once? I'm asking all my journalists questions here about what's going to make a headline.
0: Yeah, look, it's not a horse race, you know, definitely. And again, we've been, I think, very honest with lots of the third parties that we've, that we've talked to about investing in rugby. And again, it's, it's fantastic that there are so many different parties of different types of investment profile, including private equity, that want to invest in the sport. And, and we, we absolutely should embrace that. And, and, we're, and we're trying to do that. And we're also trying to work with other stakeholders in rugby to to understand what that means for us all. We, again, if we think about the sort of big moving parts that unlock value, you know, Rugby World Cup hosting model, we spent a lot of time in the last two years trying to imagine and reimagine what the future of World Rugby Seven Series looks like and how do we unlock the growth that Sevens, we know can create, you know, Olympic Games in Tokyo was a great example of the power of Sevens last year. Um, Again, the women's game, so, most of those building blocks we are trying to align and clarify and really create certainty around in the next 12 months. Again, you know, the the, the host selection process we're in for Rugby World Cup is an example. Those global calendar discussions in the men's 15s game are another example we've obviously launched and put in place, which will now start next year, this fantastic new annual competition for elite international women's rugby called WXV. That's an example of, of us of us putting those building blocks in place. So now the question is how much investment is needed in those building blocks to make them as effective as they can be in creating a growth story and a growth narrative for the sport on a global basis so you know whilst we haven't got a sort of certain time frame for decisions and announcements around that it's you know it's the next 12 12 to 18 month period that will that will allow us to, to set that roadmap down
1: yeah i wanted uh, i want to talk about um the way that investment's been brought into other parts of rugby and and the implications of that both for the conversations you're having and also for, you know, your, your functional role as, as the uh, governing body of the sport. But it's just interesting hearing you talking about that event plan, you know, and when you look around at other big governing bodies, FIFA and so on, you know, FIFA talking about having world cups more often and more, I suppose the challenge is more points of contact with, uh, with your fans and more to give to commercial bodies. I mean, is, how do you reflect on that particular challenge at the moment? I'm guessing you're not going to have a Rugby World Cup every two years, but <laughs> what's the... No, we're not. And, and you know, that's not to say
0: it wasn't considered in the past. It was. It, it was considered many years ago. Is, is, is that a driver of growth, for example? But, I mean, in the men's 15s case, if we talk about men's Rugby World Cups, you know, the men's calendar for, for professional rugby and for international rugby, therefore, is incredibly congested. And we have a responsibility not only to make better sense of that for the players, because it's the same players playing in those competitions uh, on on many occasions. And i have got to make sure, again, that player welfare is right at the heart of that debate. Of course, we want to unlock value. We want to create compelling competitions that fans are excited about and and grow audiences, but let's make sure we're doing that in a way that's that's realistic in terms of the players. Um, and, And that calendar, Involves a lot of stakeholders. It again it involves Six Nations competitions. It involves the Rugby Championship. It involves a number of competitions that we organise and fund for uh, for for other nations outside of those two established competitions. And so, we've got to make sure our plans around Rugby World Cups, men's and women's, work within the context of those calendars uh, for the game. And of course, you know, beyond the international game, there are you know again brilliant professional leagues in our sport that that expect their players uh, to be available for for that for their for the right periods for them, so that's why it's a, it's a it's a complex debate, and that's why again I think what we're trying to do is is ensure that people understand our role is to facilitate that debate, help unlock that value as much as we can, to the extent that those partners we're working with have got external investors, if you like, part of as part of their uh, reality now. Let's get all of those people to the table, um, and, and again, be open and honest about the proposition of unlocking value, creating compelling and exciting competitions, making sure that we're protecting the players and the values of the sport. And that's really what we're trying to do in terms of, um, of managing the, uh, the the progress in that area. And, and, and by us, for example, looking 12 years out and saying this is how we're going to approach Rugby World
1: Cups, that helps, again, to create certainty that others can plan around. There has been uh, private equity interest in... Um, you know, in in the biggest national team brand in the sport, for want of an, a better word, in the in the All Blacks and, and New Zealand rugby, um, and there have been deals completed by CVC with United you know, Rugby Championship, with Premiership Rugby, and um, with Six Nations. Um, what what effect does that have on some of the work that you're doing, both in terms of negotiating any investment? And in terms of trying to coordinate this calendar, trying to, you know, maintain some kind of an equilibrium between the various stakeholders that you have, the various power bases that are being built up. I think the most important thing for us, and again, I suppose it comes
0: back to sort of, you know, custodian of the sort of long term uh, health and and growth of the sport is we need to make sure that in the conversations that are happening, we are looking long term, we are making sure that, that the growth plans that are in place are sustainable. For the sport. Now, that's easily said. Obviously, one one part of that is making sure that that in the in the discussions we're having about ultimately competition models and the things again that are going to unlock a lot more value. That that there are very very importantly from our perspective pathways for emerging nations. So you know we we understand and accept in rugby that there are some established annual valuable competitions and that the people involved in those competitions, whether that's Six Nations. All the Eye unions in the Rugby Championship want to unlock more value. Fantastic, and we want them to unlock more value, and we want them to work with us and with all of the Rugby uh, stakeholders to uh, to engage more fans um, because we'll all benefit from that. So we're all, we've got very aligned interests at that point, and, and as I say, we want to make sure that that becomes something that is a, you know a driver of growth for the sport globally and not only in the markets where those competitions are played. So that. That's part of the debate we have to have. And again, I think there's good alignment on that because people understand that growth needs to be growth and emerging in emerging and new markets for rugby and not just in the markets that are, that are established. Um, and actually, you know, to date, the investors, whether that's CBC or others that have come into the sport, have been very positive, a very positive part of the debate because they are looking at. How you use those competitions, rationalise them, make them better for broadcasters and brands and others that want to invest, you know, in them, um, and ultimately that drives a better engagement with fans. And again, we want rugby. If rugby is going to stay relevant, become more accessible, it needs to be more relevant and more engaging to fans ultimately, um, and be a better. And, and I know we don't always like to use this term, but be a better product, um, and that comes down to. Things like kickoff times and the different competitions, and making sure that people can you know can access uh, can access rugby. So I think to, to date those discussions are with those investors are very positive, and we and our role is to make sure they they remain expansive and sustainable.
1: Okay. Speaking of sustainability, Alan, you know this is a, I mean you've we're talking about this because you've just launched a, an environmental um, sustainability plan in January, which is pretty far reaching and and you're not the only organisation to do this but you have detailed it and and laid it out um uh, and and made some very rugby specific um recommendations or or laid out some very rugby specific ambitions for what you want to do um but you know what do you think when you're at this kind of inflection point and you're at you're you're approaching all these other ways in which the sport might change you really now have to build the sustainability angle in at the absolute ground floor of, of whatever uh, whatever your next projects are yeah I do I think again you know've we've, we've
0: done a lot of work in the last two years on an evolutionary strategic plan and absolutely part of that is to address the role that rugby and you know we we're realistic about rugby's a sport it's not you know it's, but it's it's got a role to play in uh, in society uh, certainly in many countries where rugby's played Um, It's a great sport in terms of social responsibility, social value um, and the benefits rugby can bring. But it's therefore got a role to play in, you know, in this case, protecting the environment and addressing the biggest kind of crisis and challenge that we're all facing, which is climate change and the impacts that's having on the planet. And actually, when you when you reach that inflection point and you think about rugby and rugby is a, you know, we think about our established territories, rugby is played in some places that are severely impacted. By climate change and by the challenges that that, that uh, that's creating, and you know, we think back to rugby World Cup in Japan, and we have matches that were that were cancelled as a result of a typhoon and a tropical storm. We think about the Pacific Islands who produce such a, a wealth of incredible rugby talent that, that that is such a big part of our sport, and those Pacific Islands are under threat with rising sea levels. And you know, so it's not it's certainly not something we could ignore, and nor do we want to. And it, and I think when we, again, reflect on World Rugby having a leadership position on behalf of the sport, then we have to be the ones in a position to, to step into that space and address this. And we've worked on this Environmental Sustainability Plan or Plan 2030, as we're calling it, with you know a huge range of stakeholders, lots of external expertise to help us shape the plan. As you've mentioned there, it's it's really ambitious. It's really challenging. It's got some pretty hard you know targets in there around... Um, around, you know, halving uh, our carbon footprint by 2030 by really addressing whether it's our own activities as an organisation, the tournaments we organise, our broader footprint, how do we address those issues? And ultimately, what's really interesting about it as we've launched this and as you've seen is that the rugby players around the world really care deeply about this issue. We know rugby fans and particularly younger generations of rugby fans really care deeply about this issue. So if we're going to be relevant we have to care really deeply about this issue and we have to be seen to be addressing it. And I think, you know, we're really proud to have been able to put this plan in place to have the support that we've got. And now, now the hard work starts because we've actually got to live up to it.
1: Well, that's just it. We'll get on to that in a minute. The, the, the organisational change that happens as a result of laying something like this out there. But let's go the other way first and think about how you develop something like this. What what's the um you know what what are the influences that you take? What are the parts of what you're doing that you look at? Um, and what are some of the milestones that you set yourself to to get a bit of momentum and to get people on board internally and externally?
0: I think you know, the plan is shaped as as a lot of uh, plans are in this space by the fact that we're a, you know we're a signatory to the UN Sport for Climate Action um, framework. You know we've we've become part of that race to zero as a result of that you know, we've partnered with the IOC as an Olympic sport and other other stakeholders in this space that's that's certainly shaped and influenced our approach but then we've gone out as I said and, and, and really engaged external expertise and, and different stakeholders in in that journey we've we've come at the, in this plan we've come at it from from a, a specific way in relation to four pillars our own governance so how do we embed Know, responsible decision-making in relation to environmental sustainability in everything we do, um, and, and that's something we're going to now build into all the be- debate we have about the way that the sport is governed and run and managed and, and 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 the growth plans we build. Then we're looking at our direct impacts, so how do we reduce the kind of carbon footprint of our own activities as world rugby as an organisation, everything from the obvious in terms of waste management and single-use plastics through to you know, much more complex issues where we're an organization that organizes international events and travel around the world. And how do you do that in a more responsible way? I think probably COVID taught us all a few lessons about about some of that. We don't have to take as many flights all of us as we used to. And there's, you know, there's, there's some important lessons to be learned in that. The third pillar is really looking at our tournaments and trying to build environmental responsibility and sustainability into how we plan our tournaments and how we Ultimately, deliver tournaments in partnerships with host governments and and other stakeholders. And again, there's, that's a complex landscape—a really complex landscape. When you think about fan travel to World Cups and Seven Series events, and you know player movement. Again, international events. How we think about waste management. How we think about the the impact that those uh, events have on their local environment, sustainable supply chains, etc. And then the fourth part. Of, of or the fourth pillar, if you like, of the plan really is around. We we can take a role in promoting environmental sustainability across not just the sport, but but sport more generally, and again be a leader in that space. Those four pillars are really the sort of the planks on which the plan is built, and then the plan has a lot of detail in relation to um, the targets that we're setting ourselves and how we go about delivering them.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it almost ties back to the conversation we were having just a moment ago about. Um... You know investment and the expectations that people are going to have and you know if you have money invested in something you want to see a return then there might be a demand for more events there might be a demand for certain suppliers to be chosen over others if you turn around and say that partnership actually we're not going to do because uh it doesn't meet our sustainability objectives these are all pretty tough lines to draw at a certain point um so how do, you, how do you approach that side of it? How do you kind of put those checks and balances in at a time when you're going to be making a lot of decisions and trying to encourage uh, that growth?
0: And I think that's exactly why this is such an important moment in time to be launching a plan like this, to say, actually, we're, we're at a point where we're working again with lots of other stakeholders and you know, private investment and, and so on to to grow the sport. And absolutely, we've got to do that in a way that is sustainable. And, and including environmentally sustainable. So that comes back to how do you embed those ambitions into your decision-making uh, processes? So, you know, there's a lot of conversation happening and further debate to be had with the other stakeholders we have across the game to make sure we're all pushing in the same direction on that. Um And ultimately, how we're ha- held to account on that, I think will come back to the players and the fans. And, and you know, Around the time of, of the COP26 summit last November, you know, we were uh, we were in dialogue already with a number of player groups, but we had a, a you know an endorsement, a letter, you know, uh, from from over five hundred players, you know, imploring us and supporting us in launching these plans. And you realise that's you know those are the players that are coming through uh, into the sport and, and becoming high profile athletes in our sport. Everyone from David Pocock, who's a huge advocate in this space, to Jamie Farndale in, in, uh, in Scottish Sevens, who's, a, again, a huge advocate for, for this area, um, and many, many, many others. Right, great guys, because you can not only be part of the advocacy that we have around this, but you can hold us to account and make sure that when we're saying we're going to take this seriously, you're holding the other stakeholders in the game to account as well. So I think players and fans will continue to be at the heart of making sure we don't put these ambitions to one side for either commercial opportunities or other short-term gain.
1: Mm, let's look in the immediate term. You've got you're making decisions all the time, or you're um, making plans all the time. You have a global event this year, and you have a global event next year, and there will be things that um, you have to put in place for for both of those things. You know how how is that going to affect you, or can it, do you have an example of where you have been faced with a choice on? specific you know whether it's a supplier or a partner or a way of doing something and you've referred yourself back to this document or via the um processes you've put in place you've you've come to a different decision on on the way forward
0: to be honest there are probably quite a lot of examples and actually the the, the rubber world cup in france next year is 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 probably a very strong example of the way that these environmental sustainability ambitions if you like have shaped the delivery of you know of our biggest event in in the sport, um, we've got a great uh, partnership with the France twenty twenty three organising committee. Uh, in that regard, obviously they are very much part of a, a collaboration with Paris twenty twenty four and Olympic Games and the French uh, and the French government. And that's everything from decisions around electrification of your of your tournament transport fleet, for example. Now that that's not the cheap decision to make. That's not an easy decision to make, but it's the right decision to make. You know. To decisions around how you move teams around the country in a in a responsible way, making sure that we've got um, responsible and sustainable supply chains in, you know, in the catering provision for the tournament, which you know one of the things people don't see, but of course, is an enormous part of the operational delivery of a, of a rugby world cup, and that's some of the obvious stuff like single use plastic and reusable cups and all of that, through to you know the complexities of waste management and recycling. on a a big scale. So, yeah, there are a lot of examples, I think, embedded in the planning that we've been doing over the last couple of years and we're doing now to deliver, you know, a seven-week long event next year that will be the pinnacle of rugby and will be the most sustainable and the most responsibly delivered rugby event ever.
1: Mm. And you've talked about that 10, 12-year roadmap for future World Cups and future Sevens events, future uh, other parts of your calendar does that um, climate delivery side of things, does that evolve with that calendar as well? Are you able to kind of put uh, landmarks in there and say, okay, by this stage, we're going to be trying to do this and, and so forth? Absolutely.
0: And and that's, you know, already part of the discussion with potential hosts for those, for those future events. And again, going back to those pillars, there's part of that of, of embedding that in decision-making anyway and saying, okay, well, it has to be a, a given that there are, environmental sustainability goals in hosting conversations and in competition modeling conversations. You know, again, you think about something like the HSBC World Rugby 7 series, we are flying teams around the world, crisscrossing the globe. How do we do that in a more responsible way? Of course, there are, you know, there's lots of ways you can look at that. Um, So absolutely part of that decision-making process. And then, of course, part of that reflection on our own activities and how we take those decisions forward into the planning for the events, once that strategy is in place, and you know, ultimately, and we're not there yet. You know, you, you see a time in the future where uh, sustainability and, and broader, because we're talking about environmental sustainability here, as one part of a broader view. I think of social responsibility for major sports events in the future. How does that become part of the actual hosting decision? And you know, will we arrive at a point in time where? You're choosing one host over another potentially for events because they are able to step up to ambition in that space more. And again, it's fans and players that will push us to that place.
1: Mm. Seeing an image of a ski slope in front of a power station, but um, <laughs> I don't know where I got that one from. Um, you've got, uh, we've mentioned it a few times, but you have an event coming up this year, obviously the Rugby World Cup, Men's Rugby World Cup in, in France in 23, um, but the Women's Rugby World Cup postponed into 2022. What's the latest on, uh, on that event? What point are you at with preparations? Obviously, very complicated in, in this period, but um, how full a tournament are you hoping to deliver? Yeah, look, a complex landscape, as you say, and, and obviously a tournament that we postponed from last
0: year, which, you know, on reflection, was absolutely the right decision to make sure we can deliver an outstanding Rugby World Cup for the, for the women's game, and, and it will be a, a launch pad, I think, into the next era of uh, of a women's international rugby. So, you know, as we sit here now in in February with a tournament that's scheduled for October and November, we are planning to deliver, you know, a full tournament, full schedule in front of full stadiums in New Zealand um, with the tournament obviously focused in the Auckland area. So, and there's nothing right now to, to make us believe we can't do that. Of course, we're putting, you know, different types of contingency plans in place. We were planning when we were still looking at last year to be dealing with what New Zealand would call MIQ, managed isolation and quarantine. Do we have to get teams there early as so they go through a period of isolation before the tournament starts or before they would otherwise arrive? What does that quarantine period mean in terms of their ability to train, train in bubbles? And again, you know, not unique to rugby, but rugby's done its fair share of it. This is now what we've all been dealing with across uh, international and, and, and uh, other domestic sports competitions over the last couple of years. So those protocols, I think, have become sadly quite well established. So those plans are still in place. Now, we hope and expect that as we progress through 2022, those requirements hopefully will fall away in New Zealand as they are doing in other parts of the world. And as I say, we're planning for for a spectacular kind of celebration of women's rugby. One of the challenges clearly will be, you know, how, how can we make sure we've got the most competitive and compelling tournament possible? And sadly, particularly in the women's game, a number of those teams haven't had the level of fixtures and competition in the last two years that we would all have liked them to have. So we're working hard with the teams that are already qualified and the couple that still can qualify um, through our final qualification match, actually, in two weeks' time, our final qualification tournament two weeks' time. Working with those on their high-performance programmes, we've got to make sure we get them more fixtures than they've currently got planned in the, in the period immediately in advance of the tournament and make sure everything from strength and conditioning through to, you know, the types of, um, you know, programs they've got in place to look, to look after their athletes. And, you know, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that that is currently more challenging in the women's game than it is in the men's game when it comes to the World Cups because we're not dealing with exclusively professional full-time athletes here. Um, and so putting those additional demands on on the women who are playing the game internationally um, is, a, is a different profile of of demand and expectation that might be on the men and everyone's very conscious of that.
1: Mm. I mean, I think the the development of women's team sport is going to be a, a huge topic again through the course of this year, particularly as we get through the year, Women's Euro 2022 and then um, the Rugby World Cup in the autumn. What's the, what's the roadmap for you when it comes to the growth of the women's game and how are some of the changes? I know we don't have that much time and this is really... A, topic for another podcast but um how have some of the changes that you've made on the governance side helps with that or what have you learned from that what what's what's next really for women's rugby as you say it's, it's a big topic and, it, and it's a
0: massively important topic for us because you know we know that women's rugby is probably the biggest opportunity we have to to grow the game globally um we ne- maybe don't have some of the historic baggage, if I can use that terrible term, that we might have already in the men's game. So, for example, that that issue of a calendar uh, in men's 15th rugby that's challenging to rationalise isn't as challenging to rationalise in the women's game. So let's make sure as world rugby and, and stakeholders, whether that's women's Six Nations and other competition owners, that we get that right now and, and do a better job at putting the right building blocks in place for these brilliant uh, athletes who are coming through. And we, we've got to invest, and we are investing in every aspect of the women's game, whether that's in leadership and providing scholarship programmes for women in leadership in the sport, making sure we've got a lot more women represented in our governance structures. We've done a lot of that in the last couple of years. And of course, there's more to do through to making sure we're funding those national team high performance programmes, working with the other entities that are now emerging and maturing in the professional game. We did quite a big uh, project at the end of last year that we're now just moving into implementation around what we're calling pathway to professionalism, which is recognizing that the professionalization of the women's game, women's rugby, in different parts of the world is moving at different speeds. And what does that mean for the women's game? And how do we make sure that, again, we're creating a sustainable growth opportunity and that some nations and you know some players and some groups aren't being left behind in that? And that's a complex problem, but one, again, we've got everyone to really kind of lean into and try and address you know as a whole rather than um people breaking off doing in, uh, doing individual things so now we're re- i mean that we're really really excited about the opportunity we've got and a lot of the revenue growth we're trying to build a lot of the audience growth we're trying to build across the sport as a whole is targeted at creating more investment more quickly in the women's game
1: okay well that's definitely a theme that we will return to over the course of the year as i say um i'm gonna have to let you go in a second Alan. and um this is one of the challenges of, of being the boss is you've, you've now got another meeting immediately afterwards. But what um what are the things that you've learned over the last year and, and how has it, well, not what are the things you've learned, but how has the last year changed your thinking um, about how the sport is developing and, and about the role that World Rugby is going to play in that?
0: It's a great question. I think we've, you know, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, I think we've reflected a lot as an organisation and I certainly have, you know, coming into the CEO role, but having been in the organization for nearly eight years on uh, the, the opportunity we have as a sport to grow. And, and we think there's a really exciting opportunity there. Uh, and there's lots of different actors that can play a part in that. Everyone from investors that we've talked about through to the players and the fans that will help us drive and shape the game. And, and I think how I view that, Differently now than maybe a few years ago, and coming into the role, is that our, that our role as an organization, in many cases, is, is an enabler, a collaborator, a facilitator to listen more, to engage more, um, to, to have the debate more. And that applies from everything from the player welfare and safety issues through to the shape of the game and making it more entertaining through to all those things we talked about in growth in the women's game, for example. And ultimately, that's the type of leadership that the sport needs at this time to move forward. And therefore, that's the type of leadership the World Rugby should provide. So I think that's that's really how I see it right now.
1: OK. Alan, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Owen.